What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens podcast. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin, and I'm coming to you live from downstate New York. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody is safe, happy, healthy, doing well mentally, physically, and emotionally. And I'm not going to beat around the bush as I typically do when I come on here just, you know, talking about bullshit that nobody really cares about. We all know the NBA playoffs are here. It's... uh, I have a lot. I have a lot to say about only a couple of the series, um, especially because the one we know the playoffs just started, and there are really only a handful of series that I'm actually like fixated on. Of course, as we get deeper and deeper into the playoffs, my thoughts will change. I will have more thoughts to talk about. But as of the time of recording, it's Tuesday. There have only been three series that have played more than one game. The Sixers Raptors have played two games. The Warriors Nuggets have played two games and the Mavericks and the Jazz have played two games with um, this Tuesday, this Tuesday evening. We have three more games on the docket, Atlanta, Miami, which I'm kind of indifferent about um, Minnesota and who is it? Minnesota and Memphis, who I was one of my most, um, I'm one of the series that I'm most excited to watch. And then New Orleans and Phoenix, which is another one that I'm like indifferent on just because I feel that although game one was an 11 point victory for Phoenix or only an 11 point victory for Phoenix, and it was largely because Chris Paul turned the fuck up at the end of the game. I just feel that New Orleans is outmatched in terms of talent that's this that's another reason why I'm not too excited about Philadelphia and Toronto especially now that Scotty Barnes is going to be out for the foreseeable future even going into the series I felt that Toronto simply just did not have the talent to match up against Philadelphia I also who else did I feel that way about oh and Denver Golden State was the third series that I'm like kind of having interest in just because I really do enjoy watching the Warriors especially now that Jordan Poole's popping off and I'd I'd love to watch Nicole Jokic play because you know MVP finalist and all that but this depleted Nuggets team just does not have enough to contend with a Warriors team that has Steph Curry back from injury Klay Thompson back from injury Draymond Green not much I need to say about Draymond Green and Jordan Poole who is quickly developing into arguably the best young guard in the NBA well He's at least one of the next great young guards in the NBA. Um, So far, I think that I would be remiss not to talk about game one of Net Celtics, mainly because that was the one game that I watched with the most intrigue this past Easter. I wasn't even hanging out with my family for the first part of the game because I was just so fucking locked in. I also just kind of wanted to like hide in my room just for shits and giggles. And then even when I was downstairs eating dinner, I couldn't focus on anything because I was just so gripped by this game. And this game was probably the best game I've watched thus far. A close second is game two of Jazz and Dallas. That game that they played on Monday night was a spectacular game. Jalen Brunson popped off and we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I have so much to say about this game and I want to do my best to keep it short and keep it sweet and keep it concise and not really go on 
too many tangents because there it it was a truly a truly truly bizarre game that the Celtics and Nets played. It was weird because Boston won on a game-winning layup by Jason Tatum where there was just a full-blown defensive breakdown by Brooklyn. You had forget I think it was Nick Claxton and Bruce Brown double team uh Jalen Brown on the perimeter or Marcus Smart on the perimeter who delivered the pass to Jason Tatum and while all of that was happening KD was just at the free throw line frozen they they did this man so dirty they took him standing at the free throw line and put the he froze he ain't moving 40 minutes Snapchat text on it and overall just probably the worst game I've ever seen from Kevin Durant and that absolutely pains me to say but it's also not something that you can say very often because Kevin Durant simply simply always shows up in the postseason always 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 so I get it he got off to a rough start the beginning of the game was so weird it was so 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 bizarre The refs were officiating like there were 10 Joel Embiid's on the court. Everybody was getting banged for multiple fouls. I mean, everybody. Andre Drummond, Jason Tatum, Grant Williams, Bruce Brown. The refs were letting the whistles fly. And they were letting the whistles fly mainly because it was a very, very physical game. Boston came out from the jump and was bodying up Brooklyn for pretty much the entire first half. It was a slugfest, and I think the Nets were kind of taken back by Boston's physicality to begin, and they tried to push back with their own physicality, and it just quickly devolved into a very messy game as far as the officiating was concerned, and I don't have much to say about the officiating. Excuse me, I just have to eat my fucking sweatshirt real quick. I don't have much to say or much to critique about the officiating because I do think that the officials did the best job that they could if there was one complaint that I had and this isn't just exclusive to this game this is exclusive to NBA officiating in general if you're going to let the guys play physically which they slowly allowed more and more physicality to happen like within reason of course but if you're going to allow guys to play physically where Grant Williams is allowed to more or less shove Kevin Durant when he's trying to post up at the uh at the elbow Or if you're going to let Al Horford and Andre Drummond get into a wrestling match under the basket for the boards, that's cool. But then don't go out and start calling all of the ticky-tack fouls that don't really impede anybody's progress or don't really fuck with the flow of the game because then you're just pulling, you're just putting unnecessary whistles into the equation. Now, in terms of basketball strategy, I think that it's very clear from the jump that Nick Claxton has to be the starting center at this point, and he has to play as many minutes as he can. And in game one, he played spectacular basketball. 31 minutes, had 13 points, eight boards, three blocks, and only one foul. One foul when the referees were not afraid to call anybody for fouls. Brooklyn had 26 fouls on Sunday. The Celtics had 24 Okay, 40, 40 combined fouls for these two teams. And yet Nick Claxton only managed to get busted for one. That I think shows 
his poise, how much he's really improved since coming back. He had hamstring issues. He had conditioning issues. But him, Anthony Edwards, there are so many good young players who are rounding into form when their teams need them most. And Brooklyn has to lean on Nick Claxton more than Andre Drummond simply because Nick Claxton is the more athletic, the more versatile, just the better option to contend with Boston right now. Because I never realized how just how much athleticism and how much size Boston had all around. I knew they were a big team. I knew that you have Marcus Smart at point guard. You have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum on the wing. You have Al Horford in the middle. You know, Robert Williams might come back at some point. Grant Williams is another big body. Like, there is no shortage of size on this Celtics team. And everyone's big. They're strong. They're athletic. They're lanky. They're just, they muck up everything. And you don't get that with Andre Drummond. And I could see why Brooklyn wanted to have Drummond out there early, especially because Al Horford, crafty veteran, big guy, knows how to maneuver in space. But if you're going to switch everything, with the, which is what the Nets love to do, if you're going to switch from Al Horford to Jason Tatum to Marcus Smart, you need someone like, Clicks, like <laughs> Click Nixon, like Nick Claxton, someone who's actually capable of laying on the perimeter, Someone who's capable of shifting down to the block and playing or, you know, be okay with playing in the post. You're going to need that. And then I'm not saying get rid of Drummond's minutes entirely because I do think there is a utility for Andre Drummond. Okay. I do think that there are bits and pieces where you can play him. It's going to be interesting to see how the, how they evolve. But if Boston somehow plays with a, a slower lineup where they're not getting out in transition transition as much, then I would elect to go with Drummond. Um, but I don't really see how often that's going to happen because just looking at this team, they don't they don't really ever are in a position where they have to play slow or they have to play in the half court. I mean, all these dudes who are playing significant minutes can play multiple positions, are young, are athletic like this Boston Celtics team from top to bottom is a very 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 well built team very well coached team as well Ime Yudoka has done a fantastic job but because of this you are going to need a backup center and who is the backup center going to be someone who is athletic someone who's not afraid to I don't want to say play dirty but play gritty grimy you know almost like Almost like nauseating basketball, which I think is what this series is going to turn into. Just a slugfest. And that is this guy right here, Mr. Blake Griffin. Now, you're probably hearing me say this and thinking, but Zach, Blake Griffin is dog shit. He does not deserve to get any of these minutes. And, well, I would agree in the sense that Blake hasn't really done anything of late to deserve these kinds of minutes. Blake Griffin is certainly someone who can contribute in this series because he is a blue-collar dude in his later years. He's not the athletic freak that he once was, but he's a guy who brings energy off the bench. He has great size. He still is quite mobile. And listen, if you're going up against Marcus Smart, the defensive player of the year, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Marcus Smart is a great defensive player because of his ability to guard on the perimeter. But... This dude is taking charges. This dude's playing vertically in the paint. Like, Blake Griffin can bring those same attributes at size comparable 
to Nick Claxton. That's what I want to see a little bit more of from Steve Nash. Another thing is that you have he has to keep this guard rotation way more fluid than it was in game one. If someone is not playing well, they're, they can't be in, okay? As far as I'm concerned, the only guards who have their positions solidified are Kyrie Irving and Bruce Brown. Sorry, my, I thought I was hearing things. Yeah, no, I'm definitely hearing things. As far as I'm concerned, and evidenced by Steve Nash's rotation in the first game, Kyrie Irving and Bruce Brown, who played 42 and almost 37 minutes respectively, are the only two guards who are worthy of having their spots cemented in the lineup. Patty Mills, Seth Curry, and Goran Dragic are going to play on a hot hand basis. And in that first game, Goran Dragic was clearly the hottest hand. I don't know what it is about these Eastern European dudes in the postseason between Dragic, between Nemanja Bialica, between Bojan Bogdanovic, although he's Croatian and I'm not, I, I don't really think they consider Croatians to be Eastern Europe because they're kind of Mediterranean, but like they emigrated from Northern and Eastern Europe and settled down. Listen, geographically, it doesn't matter. These Eastern European dudes always seem to rise up during the playoffs. And Goran Dragic, with 14 points on 6 of 11 shooting in the first game, proved that he is he's the go-to guy at this point. Seth Curry did not play poorly, finished with 9 points, did have 6 assists, which is, which is great, great um, use of him in other areas. But Goran Dragic, until he starts to falter, is the go-to guy. Or is the third guard, first guy off the bench for, or first guard off the bench, I should say, for Steve Nash. And this comes at the expense of Patty Mills, whom is somebody that Nets Nation loves very dearly. Someone whom we all want to see be a huge piece of this um, of this team going forward throughout the postseason. Because he has just as much utility as Goran Dragic does. It's just that he's in a little bit of a slump. Right now, or maybe not right now, but towards the end of the season, just did not really look like, look like himself. And he got 12 minutes on um, on Sunday, but ultimately, Goran Dragic is the guy because he can shoot. That's a huge thing. He's a great playmaker, and he's a big, physical, aggressive, downhill point guard, which when you're going up against a team like this, you need guys who need are people doing work outside my house I think they are that's fucking annoying but when you're playing against these physical teams you need guys who are going to get north and south because that's the most effective way to put pressure on the defense you have to penetrate because you need the defense to move around. And the only way to get them to move around is to attack the basket, force help, whether it's from the baseline, from the corner, kick the ball out, swing it around. You need these guys to move. You need them to expend energy. You can't just let Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown and Al Horford take possessions off because they're just going to be even more well-rested going into the fourth quarter. And there were a couple of possessions 
I saw where Boston, as great as their defense was, they're not immune to breakdowns. They're not immune to lapses. And as you can see, a game decided by one point, although this is a game that Boston should have put away in the first half, just crushing Brooklyn on offense. Their defense was stifling. They had Kevin Durant look like fucking Shannon Brown in the first half. It was a remarkable performance from them. And the fact that it came down to the wire, I think says more about Brooklyn than it does Boston because Boston should have put this game away from the jump. But there were multiple possessions where the Nets were moving the ball around. They were moving players around. They were having Goran Dragic cut. They were having guys set multiple screens away from Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. And when you have all of that movement, I don't care if you're the 89 Pistons. I don't care if you're the 96 Bulls. I don't care if you're the 2017 Warriors. If you have all of this movement and all of this all of this like frenetic energy, the defense is going to break down at least once or twice. And if you're able to get two easy buckets off of that situation, that could be the difference in the game. Let alone there were other instances where the Nets fucked up, like that one insane possession where Kyrie Irving inbounds the ball and everybody else runs to the opposite end of the court. I mean, that's just... That shit does not happen in playoff basketball. It should not. It can't. The Steve Nash should not allow that to happen. And there was almost another inbounding turnover that the Nets had later on in the game, which just speaks to, again, how careless this team can be sometimes. And with all of that said, you know, more Dragic, more clacks, more movement on offense. I still believe that Brooklyn can win this series. They will not win it in any less than seven games. I don't think either of these teams wins this game before game seven because there's too much talent. There is just there there is these are the two most evenly matched teams in the postseason right now. And you could make an argument that whichever team emerges from this series will be the team that represents the Eastern Conference in the finals. And I say that because in the first round, typically what happens is I'm like all out of frame here somehow. I don't know how. Hold on. I'm trying to fucking. So, all right. I think that should be. These teams have to play perfect basketball. Perfect basketball to beat each other. The Celtics played perfect basketball. I'm still. No, I'm just not happy with my camera setup right now. Boston played perfect basketball and only beat Brooklyn by one point. Now, with that said, Brooklyn needs to play more perfect basketball. And even when they play perfect basketball, they're probably only going to be Boston by five or six. That's just how close these teams are. Now, obviously, the glaring issue with Brooklyn in game one was Kevin Durant finishing with only 23 points on 9 of 24 shooting and finishing with 6 turnovers. Yes, this was arguably the worst game that Kevin Durant has ever played in the postseason. I understand that his numbers, like he didn't shoot like 1 of 13 and finish with 7 points. But just watching him, watching him with my own two eyes, look almost rattled by Boston's physicality. It was so... It was so weird to see this guy who looked unflappable 
in the regular season, go down on the offensive on, on the offensive end of the court and have the ball poked away from him not once but twice. It might have even been three times. It was such an uncharacteristic Kevin Durant performance. And even with that, the second half rolls around and Kyrie Irving is popping off. And Kevin Durant sinks a couple jumpers and he starts making these shots that make you go, it doesn't matter how great defense you play, Kevin Durant is still is still getting buckets on you. In the second half shots, 7 of 14, which is where he's supposed to be at. So you had Kevin Durant play the worst game of his life. And I know Kyrie Irving compensated for that, but Kyrie's going to be in the low 30s scoring-wise for the entirety of this series. And even with that, even forcing Kevin Durant into a bad performance, Boston needed everything. They needed everything from Jason Tatum. They needed 20 from Al Horford because Jalen Brown didn't play particularly well throughout the first half. He came on a little bit later as well. And Marcus Smart gave them 20 on 8 of 17, including 4 of 9 from 3. I get that Marcus Smart is a fantastic player. I don't know if this is the type of production that Boston can expect from him for the entirety of the series, especially if he's going to have to match up against Kyrie Irving for a majority of it. I don't see that being sustainable. Will there be stretches where he gets hot? Yes, Marcus Smart, after making a couple of threes, is the most frightening NBA player ever because anytime a guy who for his, his for his career averages 12 or 13 points a game, when he starts getting into like the 15, 16, 17, 18 point, cap, 18 point range, what it does for Boston's offense is just takes them to an almost giga-chad level of efficiency. Because how do you guard Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and then cover Grant Williams on the perimeter and Derek, Wright and Derek White on the perimeter? You can't. Brooklyn does not have the defense to be able to contend with that. But I do think that it's more likely that Kevin Durant or it's more... Hold on. How did I explain this? I forgot how I explained it to whoever the fuck I was talking about. But I don't think Kevin Durant looks like how he looked on Sunday for the rest of the series and for the rest of the playoffs. If boss, if uh, Brooklyn is able to make it that far. Because he like it was, it was like so... It was so, 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 so strange, man. Just absolutely weird. Now... One of the big takeaways from Sunday wasn't even Kyrie's play. Like, we know that he finished with 40 40 points on spectacular shooting, had a couple of nuclear shots that he made where the defense was draped all over him and it didn't matter. One of them came late in the game, or in the second half. I forgot when exactly, but Jalen Brown is guarding Kyrie on the, like, elbow extended area, and Kyrie just pulls up, drains the two, turns around, and gives the middle finger to the fans in Boston. And this sent the timeline into a frenzy because you do not, if you're doing anything to anger an opposing star player, the home team should have full reason to remove you from the contest because the Celtics are lucky that they didn't lose this game because I almost would have single-handedly blamed that fan for poking Kyrie Irving enough to give him the middle finger. We know about the contentious relationship that certain Celtics fans have 
with Kyrie Irving. And it's brought up every time he's gone to Boston. You know, he stepped on the leprechaun and that sent people into a tizzy because people are fucking soft. And it was just like, bro, who cares? It's a fictional character. Like, you're getting bent out of shape for no reason. And then I'm sure there were a couple of racial slurs said his way just because we know how certain Boston sports fans can get. And, you know, Kyrie's like, he said word for word, you know, I'm just reciprocating that energy. I'm just reciprocating that the energy that the fans are giving me. And then he's like, of course, I know this isn't directed at every Celtics fan. There are a lot of great fans in Boston. And I'm sure there are. It's always the it's always the minority of fans that give the fan base a bad name. But the league went ahead and they find Kyrie Irving for his antics. And I I would be I would be definitely scared if I was the Boston Celtics because as I already mentioned multiple times already, you played perfect basketball. You were the best team out there on Sunday. You beat their ass on the boards. The final tally on a rebounding was 43 to 29. You, they forced Brooklyn into 16 turnovers. I think only got like 18 points or so off of them. I can't remember exactly. Actually, I'm going to look it up right now. But you beat their ass on the boards. You smothered them on defense. Um, Boston held sizable leads in points in the paint, 56 to 32. Second chance points, 18 to 11. Fast break points, 21 to 17. And despite forcing Brooklyn into 16 turnovers, the Celtics got just 15 points off of them. Like, you look at these numbers. Combined with Boston shooting 19 of 24 from the free throw line. Shooting 47% from the field, which is pretty good. And 36% from three. Although both of those were less than Brooklyn. A lot of that is buoyed by the fact that Kyrie had a spectacular evening, as did Nick Claxton. But really, beyond that, none of the uh, the only other volume shooter was Kevin Durant. And he, and he did not look that great. You did all of this. Oh, and I'm talking about rebounding. The Tally in offensive rebounding was 14 to 5. They did all of this while getting help from the officials, and I acknowledge that Brooklyn got help from the officials as well. They did all of this, and they still only won by one point. I don't understand. I, I don't understand how. I thought this game was going to be over by halftime. I sincerely did, because it's it's not often that it's not often that teams have such a lead in various significant statistical categories but it's not often that the Nets play as bad as they did on Sunday and come close to finishing the game near their opponents it simply does not happen now that we're on the now since we're on the topic of um now that we're on the topic of you know we'll stay Celtics Nets centric I think it is worth noting Whoa, furries did 9-11. Okay, we're getting off that real quick. Where is it? It was announced today that expectedly Kyrie got banged for $50,000 because of the because of the middle finger he gave to the fans. I said the league is soft. Here's a picture of it just so you guys can see. Originally looking at this, I couldn't tell that it it was his middle finger because there's like a single pixel in this whole picture. 
I just thought that Kyrie was like throwing up a one or maybe like a three or something. But I'm not surprised. Like fans, fans are fucking wild sometimes. Sports fans go to a game and they just think that they're living in a utopia where no laws exist and everybody is self-governing and they can just get away with whatever. No, I think that I also think that if you provoke an athlete so badly that you guys should be able to fight straight up like during the playing tournament when Miles Bridges uh, fouled out or got ejected or whatever and he took his mouthpiece and he pegged it at that little girl. That was because some dickhead fucking guy was barking at him. If I'm working at the arena, I'm getting Miles Bridges. I'm handing him two boxing gloves. I'm handing the fan two boxing gloves. And I'm like, listen, if you want to talk shit, get out, get in, get in there, get in his ass, dude. And of course, 10 times out of 10, the athlete would fucking wash the shit talker and it would just be raps. And it would be great because one, fans would know how far they can push it. Like you can talk smack. That's okay. But every fan... Every fan knows when they're stepping a line, when they're crossing the line. You don't accidentally cross the line when you talk shit, okay? It just, it doesn't happen. And what it, also what that would do is it would prevent another malice at the palace, which a lot of people are saying, like, we need another one of those. We need another one of those just to remind the fans that, you know, they have to learn how to, how to behave themselves, how to act like, you know, they are a part of a society. And while I don't want a repeat of the malice at the palace, I do think that it would be good for a fan to get beat up in a boxing style avenue where they are consenting, where they are consenting to the punishment. I don't think that athlete should just go around assaulting people. I don't think anyone should go around assaulting anybody. But, you know, it's kind of like when people talk about how back in the day, the nuns used to hit the Catholic school students or like, you know, sometimes students while out. If I was a teacher, and a student was fucking with me, I'd throw him a pair of gloves and I'd be like, okay, buddy, let's fucking, let's get after it. Let's get after it. Anyway, um, a big piece of news that dropped because there really hasn't been much news to talk about with the playoffs was Marcus Smart became the first guard since Gary Payton to win Defensive Player of the Year. And this was a fucking bizarre announcement. Um, I had no idea that Marcus Smart was going to win. I thought it was going to be Rudy Gobert because I saw the finalists and Bam wasn't there. McCall Bridges was there ahead of Bam, but not only Bam, Jaron Jackson Jr. as well, who was my pick to win the award. And lo and behold, Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart won Defensive Player of the Year over Rudy Gobert and over McCall Bridges. And this, again, sent the timeline into a tizzy because everything sends the timeline into a tizzy. And... Folks are like, fraudulent award, Marcus Smart didn't deserve it. Even Bam was like, I'm feeling disrespected by this, but we're going to get into it. We're going to get into that in a moment. Celtics guard Marcus Smart has been named. Oh, here go the dogs. Awesome. Marcus Smart uh, is the first DPOY award for Smart, who's the first guard to take home the honor since GP in 95-96. Peyton was on hand at the Celtics practice facility to give Smart the award. Uh, Smart tweeted, quote, really blown away, to be honest, incredibly honored, just happy to be able to get this award with our team and our brothers on the team. This is for you, Mama. Heart emoji, I love you. Smart received 257 points, 37 first place votes to finish first in voting. 
Gordon McCall, Bridges of the Suns, and center Rudy Gobert of the Jazz wound up second and third respectively in voting from a panel of 100 writers and broadcasters. Smart finished the season ranked 7th in the NBA in steals per game for a Celtics team that led the league in defensive rating and points allowed per game. He was also ranked 5th among all guards with a defensive rating of 105.2 and was first in the league with 1.1 loose balls recovered per game. I'm not a fan of using the individual defensive rating because I talked about this when I was, you know, doing all of my awards. It was the defensive metrics in the NBA are not where they should be. They're not up to the level that they should be. Um, But listen, we know that when the Celtics are good defensively, it's largely because of Marcus Smart and Robert Williams. Um, Smart, who started each of the 71 regular season games he played, also finished tied for 10th in deflections and charges drawn and had a career-high 3.2 defensive rebounds per game. So, there was, um, I forgot who who tweeted it. I think it was Nate Jones or Nate Duncan, one of those guys, and they were like, Marcus Smart won this award because of an elaborate PR campaign by the Boston Celtics, and, you know, I think that to say that you feel someone should have won the award over Marcus Smart is, you know obvious right this was a loaded defensive player of the year class Gobert, bam triple j smart bridges Giannis, um draymond green of course is going to be in there always robert williams before he got hurt there were a lot of players who were gunning for the award and had legitimate cases to bring home the award and if you disagree with marcus smart winning the award that's fine but to say that he doesn't deserve it i think crosses the line because every year we talk about Marcus Smart as being arguably the best defensive guard in the NBA. Not only that, but he's someone who is way more versatile defensively than his physical attributes would lead you to believe. I mean, his ability to play underneath the basket, granted, he's not going to have the same defensive field goal percentage as someone like Gobert or someone like Jaron Jackson. He's not going to have the same amount of blocks, but just being a pest being able to play with verticality because of his size and his length like he is a huge piece of Celtics of the Celtics defensive prowess however guards winning defensive player of the year is ultra rare because a an elite defensive guard will look like shit if they don't have an equally strong or a comparable center behind them In the NBA, you are only as good defensively as your weakest link. It's different than it is in football, where if you're a lockdown corner, you can play straight up the entire game and the quarterback won't even look your way. You don't have the luxury of that. You don't have that luxury being a perimeter defender because nine times out of 10, especially in this NBA, like Marcus Smart can, in within one week, guard Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, Devin Booker, De'Aaron Fox, and Chris Paul. Within a week, he can face three or four or five of the best bucket getters in the NBA. And that's not even talking about James Harden. That's not talking about Kyrie Irving. We're not mentioning um, CJ McCollum or DeJounte Murray or any of the other elite guards that populate the NBA. D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, 
um fucking um Damian Lillard when he's healthy. Like being a guard in today's NBA is tough. And because there's so much talent, these guys are going to beat you. Okay? You're going to get beat on the perimeter a couple of times a game if you're Marcus Smart. And depending on what your help defense looks like, that's going to really impact you holding someone to 7 of 19 shooting or 17 of 19 shooting. And Robert Williams and Marcus Smart impacted each other uh, symbiotically because Marcus Smart can play more aggressively knowing that Robert Williams or Al Horford is behind him, which is why he gets a lot of deflections, which is why he gets a lot of steals, which is why, you know, he holds his opponents to a respectable shooting percentage from deep. But if he doesn't have that behind him, it clouds how people judge Marcus Smart as a defender. And centers being, you know, the last line of defense, guys like Rudy, Draymond, Bam, you know, going back to Ben Wallace and Tim Duncan and Hakeem Olajuwon, they are the last line of defense. And if they're getting all the blocks and they're altering all the shots and they're the premier defender, obviously they're going to get all of the accolades. But just knowing how elite the Celtics defense has been and knowing how they were able to turn around, turn their season around, I felt that Robert Williams was going to win the award if he didn't get hurt. But then, you know, applying that same logic to Jaron Jackson Jr. as being the last line of defense for a Grizzlies team, that was one of the best teams in basketball. But I'm not, like, here trying to dismiss Marcus Smart as a defender like some other people are just because of this, like, elaborate PR campaign that the Celtics ran. But we want I want to quickly just do... I want to react to what Bam Adebayo had to say about this because I love when NBA players talk spicy about one another and they're always like, oh, I'm disrespected by this. It's like, okay, dude, I, I get it. A couple of hours after the Heat opened up their postseason run with a dominant 115-91 win over Atlanta on Sunday, the NBA announced the finalists for the 2021-22 regular season awards. Heat coach Eric Spolster was named one of the top three candidates for coach of the year. Tyler Hero was top three candidates for six men of the year. The defensive player pool, however, did not include Bam Adebayo. Quote, I'm just really stunned that Bam's not a finalist. I don't know what people are watching, and he's played in enough games, so I don't want to hear that excuse either. Adebayo played in 56 games for the Heat, who boasted the fourth best defensive rating. See, this is excellent, because Bam played in a little bit more than half the season. And a reason why I didn't want to give the award to Robert Williams is because Rob played in 61 games and I felt that wasn't enough. So if we're going to make this case for Bam, then go ahead and give the award to Robert Williams because Robert Williams was the best defender on the best defensive team in the NBA. He was edged by he was edged ooh, he was edged by Marcus Smart of the Boston Celtics who played 71 games for the number one rated defense. McCall Bridges of the Suns who played 82 games for the third best defense, and Gobert who played 66 games for the tenth rated defense. I can't believe the Jazz were that bad of a defensive team this year. Uh, disrespectful said Adebayo Monday when asked of the finalists. I feel like I can do anything that two out of the three can do. Besides, I mean, I can't teach height, but all three play on TV more than me, so I would expect that. They get more TV games, and they get more exposure. People like to talk about them more. Don't want to talk about us, so it's whatever at this point. That's awesome, because 
I think that Miami is the third biggest media market in the country behind New York and Los Angeles. It's like, dude, you literally play in fucking South Beach. There's no way Miami is. Miami is 18th. How? That's crazy. I did not know that. Okay. So it goes New York, LA, Chicago, Philly, DFW, Oakland. Listen, man. All right. So I was a little bit off on that. But still, you play in Miami. Marcus Smart plays in Boston. And Rudy Gobert plays in fucking Utah. No one talks about the Utah Jazz ever. No one on the East Coast talks about any West Coast team because we're all asleep while they're playing. Like, I... Bam should have just come came out and said, I don't understand. Instead of playing like the media market thing. Because what do you mean no one's talking about the Heat? You guys are the best team in the East. You literally put the smackdown on the Atlanta Hawks. Everyone couldn't shut the fuck up about Trey Young shooting one of twelve or one of eight or whatever he finished with. So But uh all right, let's continue. I feel that's why a lot of dudes do get a lot of awards, in my opinion. They're always on TV getting to showcase their talent and just so happen to have good games. This is hilarious, by the way, because two of the three two of the three finalists for MVP this year play in mid-sized markets in Denver and Milwaukee. Like, you could... I would much rather hear an athlete just come out and say that the voters don't know what they're fuck what the fuck they're talking about because that's actually true a lot of the time. Like the media can't vote for shit. Um the players also can't vote for shit either and that's evidenced by the All-Star ballots when they come out. Generally, only the coaches tend to vote quote unquote properly, but I don't want coaches voting for any of the major awards because like it would just I think it would just get super wacky. But, like, to to use the media market excuse is very interesting because that is also, like, what people in the media say to justify their favorite guys not winning the awards. I mean, I think it's just kind of, I think it's just kind of silly. And I'd much rather just listen to athletes be spicy, like, truthfully. The frustration is we don't get as many games on TV as they do. That's the only thing that's frustrating because I feel like if I had as many TV games as them, it wouldn't be I'm out of the finalists and this, that, and the third. Uh, just watch any one of our games, Spolstra said. You have a defensive system that's built around toughness and versatility, and it's not a cliche. It's not just a thing you can throw out there that he can literally guard one through five. You can count on one hand in the association of 450 how many guys that can legitimately say that they compete on the ball one through five at all five positions. Listen, nobody is nobody is saying that Bam can't do all these things. It's just that he got rooked in the voting. A hundred percent. Listen, would I have put Gobert as a finalist over Bam? Probably not. But ultimately, when I was thinking about this award, I was only thinking about Robert Williams and Jaron Jackson Jr. Those were the only guys. Um since now we're actually talking about weird discourse surrounding NBA awards, we have to talk about 
dude, we have to talk about Jordan Poole. We we have to talk about this most improved player thing because I'm fucking sick of having this. I'm sick of having this fucking discourse. I think it's so, it's so, it's just, it's so fucking annoying. Um, goddamn, I'm just adjusting my camera again because I'm a fucking boomer. So, the most improved player finalists come out, and there are three names on there. There's Darius Garland, there's John ja Morant, and there is Dejounte Murray, and the timeline again, gets thrown into a tizzy. And by the timeline, I'm not talking about the entire timeline. In this instance, I'm talking about Mark Stein, who tweeted that Josh should have been left off the MIP finalists list because that list should not include MVP candidates. And I'm like, you're... Hold on, I gotta find the tweet because it's fucking stupid. Oh, God. Okay, this is Mark Stein. Also, the MIP candidate, the MIP category isn't just for isn't for MVP candidates. Ja Morant was an MVP candidate. No slight to Ja, but Jordan Poole is a much better fit for that race. And I quote tweeted, and I said, "This is the weirdest take. Penalizing a player. Wow, I'm fucking stupid. Penalizing a player for objectively being the most fitting candidate for the award. But how are you gonna sit?" on Twitter as a member of the media and say that objectively the most improved player in the NBA is not allowed to win the award because he improved too much. That does not make any sense to me. John Morant, who, yes, is an MVP candidate, it's his fault that he improved his shooting by five percentage points from last year to this year it's his fault that he increases scoring by nine points per game from this year or from last year to this year that that doesn't make any sense considering the fact that Jordan Poole had a smaller improvement Jordan Poole as the numbers say right here went from 12 points to 18 and a half from 1.8 boards to about three and a half from about two assists per game to four assists per game while maintaining his already impressive shooting splits. And I'm not going to downplay Jordan Poole's, de- Jordan Poole's development because I know that it wasn't just a fluke. But a large reason that his numbers were this improved is because he was seeing one and a half times as many minutes. When you're playing that many more minutes in an offense that is giving you shots, you're bound to improve. And I'm not using this as a slight to Jordan Poole. I'm not using it as a slight to Jordan Poole because on the basis of just improving statistically, he technically did improve better than Darius Garland, who's scoring only rose by, I think, like four points a game, and his assists went up by about two, the same as Jordan Poole. But either DeJounte Murray or John Morant was winning most improved. There's no way you can sit here and say, no, you can't say that John Morant doesn't deserve to be the most improved player because he was an MVP candidate. I think that's just disingenuous. I I, I think it, it's stupid, man. It really is. It's dumb. It sets such a weird precedent for media people to just discredit guys for being 
too good. Like, that is almost actually saying, like, Joel Embiid cannot be the MVP because he led the league in scoring. Like, he's way above everybody else in that regard. So he's not allowed to be the MVP, which that wasn't announced quite yet, but uh, he, he has a chance to win it. But now imagine using that same talking point, the same talking point that pretty much every other person is using to justify him winning the award. You're going to look at that and say, no, actually he shouldn't be most improved because he was the most improved. Like that's just absolutely insane. Um, I expect that type of rhetoric from somebody like Jordan Poole who said, quote, it is what it is. I mean, it's whatever. When it comes to the awards, so many guys are like, you know, yeah, I'd like to be acknowledged, but ultimately we're trying to win a championship, which I don't hate it. Uh, listen, it's just, it's part of the business. Uh, and then Draymond Green, of course, has his teammates back saying, if Jordan Poole isn't the most improved player, the NBA really needs to relook at their process. You cannot find a guy on that list who made a bigger improvement. Like, that's wrong. That's literally, that's statistically incorrect. That's statistically incorrect. But what are you going to expect Draymond Green to say? Be like, look, JP is great. He he fits in our team really well, but Ja was the most improved player. Like, no one is going to say that. No teammate is going to say that about their teammate when their teammate has a legitimate chance to win the award. If JP had the same season he had last year and wasn't mentioned in it, I'm sure I'm sure Draymond would be like, look, Ja, ja had a great season. I mean, this guy was an MVP candidate. Like, why wouldn't he be? The most improved. But that was that. So far, there hasn't been a crazy amount of discourse in regards to the awards, namely because only Defensive Player of the Year has been announced. And I'm sure when all the other ones come out, there's gonna be there's gonna be a lot of um there's gonna be a lot of spiciness surrounding them. But I just want to shift back to the matter at hand, just shift back to the NBA playoffs as a whole. And I want to talk about this series right here. This series right here, Jazz Mavs, what was shaping up to be arguably the best series of the postseason up until it came out that Luka Doncic was not going to be able to play for at least the first couple of games as he's dealing with this calf strain. It has still been arguably the best series and has the potential to be the best series of the postseason. Both of these teams have won one game so far. Utah won the series opener, and Dallas pulled off in in fucking just un, unexpected victory in game two. You had Jalen Brunson go off for 41. You had Dallas absolutely shoot the fucking lights out. I think they were 22 of 44 last night. 22 of 47. They shot the lights out. Maxi Kleba had how many did he have 25 off the bench 17 from Spencer Dinwiddie although he played like shit there's hyper inefficiency and Jalen Brunson was basically like listen someone has to put the team on the on their back and Jalen Brunson was the one who decided to do it and I'm just so disappointed with Utah I saw Stephen A had a take this morning excuse me as I go snag a drink I saw Stephen A on first take this morning go on and on about how he's so disappointed with the Utah Jazz. And I'm like, you know what? I fucking despise the Utah Jazz too. And I despise them because they're every year, 
Every year, we put such high expectations on this team. And we only do it because of Donovan Mitchell. We know that really the only reason the Jazz are ever mentioned as contenders is because of Donovan Mitchell. Because he's such a fucking fantastic player. And every year, every year, this team stampedes through the regular season. Except for this year. They had a little bit of a rough go this year. But again, Joe Ingles hurt, so obviously. But every year, this team tramples over their competition in the regular season. And they get to the playoffs, and their super max center, their $200 million center, the number two to Donovan Mitchell, is basically unusable. And they crash, and they burn spectacularly. This team has yet to go to a conference finals, despite being a championship favorite for the last three, four, like three or four years or so. And it's because of shit like this. Look at this box score. Guys, we have Donovan Donovan Mitchell, 34 points. Boyan Bogdanovich, 25 points. 21 from Jordan Clarkson off the bench. And then you have Rudy Gobert scoring 8 points on 2 of 5 shooting. This man is 13 feet tall, missing dunks. Missing easy shots around the basket. And now, they are seriously at risk of falling behind to a Dallas Mavericks team that does not have their best player. And I'm not trying to disrespect the Dallas Mavericks. Do not misunderstand me. They are a spectacular team. But they are spectacular because of how seamlessly and how everybody fits so well alongside Luka Doncic. And you're giving up 41 to Jalen Brunson when there's no Tim Hardaway, when Spencer Dinwiddie is shooting 6 of 18, when there's no Luka, and you lose in this fashion with your best player, just fighting to keep the team alive. I mean, Rudy Gobert for the series is averaging 6.5 points a game. Like, what? what is this? What are we doing? What are we doing? Man's is shooting 2 of 6. This is your $200 million player? Like, where do you go from here if you're the Utah Jazz? What do you do? Because it looks like it doesn't fucking matter what you do. Because you have the 10th best defense in the NBA. You have a defensive player of the year finalist. You have all this length, all this athleticism on the perimeter with Daniel House, Royce O'Neal, Mike Conley. You know, granted, not big, not long, but still... A decent enough defender. You have Donovan Mitchell, who is like top 20 player in the league, arguably top 15 player in the league, arguably. And you're losing to a Dallas Mavericks team that is currently without a single all-star. When you have two. I'm just trying to rationalize what the next step is for them. If they get bounced in the first round, which is entirely possible because just the defense is not really doing much. You know, Rudy Gobert is basically just taking up space. I mean, he's blocking shots. Yeah, that's cool and all, but it you need more than eight points from you need more than eight points from your center against a team who not only has no all-star, 
but doesn't have anybody on the team who's taller than like 6'8". I'm sorry, 6'10". Maxi Kleba is 6'10", but does not play like a traditional center. And he was beating Gobert's ass on the boards. I know the rebounding numbers say differently. I know that Rudy's averaging 17 rebounds through two games. And I know that he had, how many did he have yesterday? He had 17. But there were multiple times where he just could not grab the rebound over multiple Dallas defenders who were shorter than him. Like, Rudy Gobert should have 10, maybe not 10, but on like 6, 7, 8 offensive rebounds every game. Like, is that too much to ask for? I feel like it's... I feel like it's not. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe 8 rebounds a game. Maybe 8 offensive rebounds a game is a lot to ask for. And I know that 4 is a little bit on the higher side. But, like, the context is necessary here. Like, you're the biggest dude on the court. I know Dallas is sending multiple defenders your way. But when has that stopped you from getting four, five, six offensive rebounds in a game before? And maybe not even getting a large number of offensive rebounds, but finishing the ones that you do get. Because nobody on Dallas has the size nor the athleticism to guard Rudy Gobert. And still, and still, this man is finishing with single-digit points in postseason games. It's astounding. It's absolutely astounding. Like, I know that Utah probably is not low on confidence because ultimately at the end of the day, what are the odds that Jalen Brunson is going to replicate this performance? And, you know, that's all fine and dandy. But he did it once. He very well can do it again because it's not like he doesn't have the skill set to have high point games. He's a very, very solid guard offensively. But you also don't want to go deep into the series and have it be like 2-2 or go into Game 7 and Luka comes back. And then next thing you know, you, you're you bounced in the first round when you went four, five, six games against a Dallas Mavericks team that didn't have Luka. And then where do you... Again, my, the question I can't help not to ask is... What's the next step? Because Utah is not winning a chip with Rudy Gobert as their second best player. It's not happening. And I'd be saying differently if Gobert was a more modern center, a center that actually had some substance of skill. Like If he had some something substantive on offense where he could create for himself where he could create buckets for himself and actually be a part of the offense. Like Joel Embiid, maybe. DeMarcus Cousins a few years back. Someone who you could drop the ball to in the post to just relieve a little bit of offensive pressure from your guard. But he can't do that. And you're paying him $200 million to be an elite defender, which is all fine and dandy. But if you're losing in the postseason and teams are playing him off the court in the postseason, like... You're just wasting money at that point. You you just made a $205 million donation to the Gobert Fund. And I'm not, like, trying to hate on him for getting, for getting his money. Like, good on him for getting $200 million. That's awesome. But, like, Utah is not going to reach their potential unless they can bring in somebody else. Like, Bradley Beal. 
or like someone like DeMar DeRozan. It's not going to happen. And after watching this game, after watching Game 2 Dallas Jazz, which was on NBA TV for some reason, um, why the f- Dude, the NBA just... I-, I don't understand how their television programming is just so fucking weird and how unfluid it is. Yesterday, they put Sixers-Raptors, which is objectively a game that we really don't want to watch. No disrespect to the Raptors. They just don't have the star power to match up against Philly. Especially with Embiid, Harden not looking like dog shit, and Tyrese Maxey transcending and looking like the second coming of Allen Iverson. They they can't put up with that. They can't, they have nothing. I don't want they don't have nothing. That's that's disrespectful. But Siakam and Van Fleet Van Vliet cannot beat that team by themselves. And even if Scotty Barnes were healthy, that team is still destined for like a five six round, a five six game exit. But they put that game on TNT. And put Jazz Mavericks on NBA TV. Why? Why, dude? You know that Dallas-Utah is a more exciting series. The first two games have been decided by a combined 12 points. Why are you doing this to the fans? They're doing it again with us on Tuesday, where they have Atlanta and Miami on TNT, I believe. And then Memphis-Minnesota on NBA TV. Bitch, we want to watch Ja and Anthony Edwards on cable, not on NBA TV. We don't want to watch fucking Atlanta barely put up 90 points in a game against the Miami Heat. No one wants to watch that. Like, what? Why? The scheduling does not have to be this hard. I assure you. I assure you. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I had to say about the other playoff, the other playoff teams. I talked about. Brooklyn, um, I think really the, the only other thing that's caught my eye, and I would talk about Milwaukee, Chicago, but I really didn't watch game one that intensely. And I feel like game one, because the final score was like, what, 93 to 93 to 86, we didn't see really either team operate at the level that we know they can operate. I mean, I'm just looking at the numbers. Milwaukee, 40% overall, 26% from three. Chicago, 32% overall, 19% from three. Um, this is this was an anomalous performance from Chicago in terms of efficiency. I don't think this is replicable. I know Milwaukee is an elite defense, um, but bro, they shot 19% from three. They missed 30 threes. How? How? Like, much like watching Kevin Durant in the first game against Celtics. Like, how did this happen? How did this happen? Um, I'm, What am I looking at? Of course, we know Giannis popped off. But, yeah, I need to see more from these teams before I actually start, you know, giving a take on it. Because there really isn't much, there really isn't much for me to go off of, off of this one game. And that's also coupled with the fact that, like, I, again admittedly did not watch this game too intensely so I apologize with that but I think I think I want to close the playoff section out with the Nuggets and the Warriors because we are once again on the cusp of Golden State returning to be the dominant force that folks thought would never return and they're they're fucking here dude Clay came back Steph came back at 34 
the other night after in his second game back after missing a month with his uh, foot injury. And Jordan Poole is just taking it to another level. And I touched on it early in the beginning, but Denver just is so outmatched. They can't weather JP averaging 30 with Steph having 25 and not even being, you know, fully back into the offense yet. Clay having 20. I mean, Draymond, of course, is doing his thing. Draymond's always going to do his thing. And Denver just can't, Denver just can't keep up. I mean, Golden State is effectively like, we will live with playing Jokic one-on-one. And, I mean, he's putting up, you know, decent numbers. He's got 25 and 10, shooting 47% from the floor. But, you know, Golden State, they know that their defense is easily going to take away all of Jokic's options. And they're going to live with playing one-on-one because, one, he's not going to score 110 points every game. That's fucking insane. And they know that if they allow Jokic to get in a flow passing and they allow him to really, like, allow his team... Well, not allow, but... And they allow him to get his teammates into the flow of the offense, even for a defense that is as stifling and as dominant as Golden State, much like I was saying with the Boston Celtics, if you run enough plays and you put enough guys in motion, there are going to be lapses. And you don't want those lapses as Golden State because just as quickly as you can close a 12-point lead, Denver can do it just as quickly because... They have Jokic. They have shooters on the perimeter. Monty Morris can shoot. Bones Highland can shoot. Will Barton can shoot. Uh, Bryn Forbes can shoot as well. But if you just play one-on-one and you harass Nikola Jokic and you super glue your and you super glue yourselves to everybody else on the perimeter, what what more is there to do? What more is there to do? And Denver is not fucking defending anybody on the other side, so that's not even out of the question. But this team's gotten washed by fucking 20 points in Game 2 and 16 points in Game 1. It's a wrap. It's a wrap for the Nuggets, dude. And it's a shame because people are going to use this as an indictment on Jokic. And when you are an MVP finalist, people do expect more from you. But you have to... You have to see the context in the situation. No Murray, no Michael Porter Jr. If those two guys are here, the series is is completely different. Like, not only are the Nuggets not getting blasted by double digits each game, but it could be 1-1 going back to Denver. Going back to Denver against a Warriors team that still has three of the best players in basketball. Um, Yeah, and again, that's just... As much as much fun as the Warriors are to watch and as much fun as the Nuggets are to watch, like it's just not a series that I'm too um I'm too keen on watching. This actually now that we're talking about the Warriors, perfect segue. Headline reads TNT's Charles Charles Barkley says Giannis Joel Embiid would quote unquote kill Golden State's little death lineup, and those are his words. Not mine. TNT commentator Charles Barkley, an NBA Hall of Famer who never, ever, ever, ever wastes an opportunity to take a shot at the Warriors, was in postseason form during halftime of Monday's Dubs blowout of Denver. Even after Golden State took a six-point lead into the half after a solid second quarter that included the return of the Warriors' new death lineup, a small ball teaming of Curry, JP, 
Thompson, Wiggins, and Green that helped them blow up the Nuggets in Game 1. Barkley was ready to blast both MVP finalist Nikola Jokic and the Warriors in the same breath. Quote, the Joker has to take advantage of playing against a six foot six guy. You can't tell me you're the MVP and they got Drummond guarding you. Y'all put that little death line up out there, put it out there against Giannis and Embiid, and see what happens. They'll kill them. Now, of course, Chuck, um, no, <laughs> famous, famously elite defender during his heyday, is incorrect here. And he's just... Way out of way offline. We're yeah, actually. You think that little y'all put that little death line up out there? Put it out there against Giannis and Joel Embiid and see what happens. Ooh. He'll kill him. Okay. All right. But we ain't got to worry about that. I, I, I think Draymond has proven that P, he doesn't get killed. No, no. Yeah, but yeah, that's important. But like, put him out there against me, or saying, Car, me, Shaq, or Carl Malone. Oh, oh, Draymond would guard you easily. Okay. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. Put him out there against me, Shaq, or Carl Malone. First of all, um, Sha- Shaq. Chuck getting clamped up 100%. 100% getting clamped up by Draymond Green. Carl Malone, maybe. Draymond would definitely harass Carl Malone. He would definitely be trash-talking, calling him a pedophile and stuff in a video game. Um, Shaq, no one's guarding Shaq, dude. You can't, you can't be talking about defense and then say, oh, yeah, put that defender against Shaq and see what happens. Bitch. Shaq couldn't even guard Shaq. What do you mean? What do you mean? There is nobody in NBA history who's guarding Shaq in his prime. Not Bill Russell, not Dikembe Mutombo, not Hakeem. None of these guys are guarding Shaq with any efficacy. But back to the task at hand here. One, you can put Draymond Green on Nikola Jokic because Draymond Green is the best defender that this generation of basketball has ever seen. And even though he's shorter, and shorter players typically have a little bit less of an advantage, Nikola Jokic and all the other guys that have gone up against Draymond Green have to contend with the fact that when you're going up against a shorter guy, it's not as easy as just turning and shooting over them every time, especially when the height difference is only like four or five inches and Draymond Green has like a six, like a seven, three wingspan or whatever it is probably closer to seven feet i think i'm exaggerating you can't just turn and shoot over him every time that's not how that works and then also Draymond being shorter means he has a lower center of gravity which means he's not going to be able to be pushed around as easily because he can get down in a stance keep an keep his forearm on Jokic's waist and then use the other hand to just you know bother him or whatever and still put in a decent defensive performance i mean i don't know what I don't know. I'm actually going to look this up. I'm going to see what Jokic is shooting with Dre as his primary defender, at least in um, yesterday's game. Oh, you fucking goddamn it. Where are we? Oh, God. I hate how... I hate how difficult it is trying to fucking navigate this shit. Bro. Okay, I finally found it. Jesus fucking Christ. I hope this is the right game. Yes, it is. Okay, thank Christ. Finally. So, offensive player. Nikola Jokic. Jokic shot. 3 of 13. When defended by Draymond Green. 
why why is why is Chuck talking like Draymond Green is not Draymond Green? I mean, the numbers speak for themselves, dude. And then to just bring up the death lineup. Put them out there against Giannis and Embiid and see what happens. Okay. See, this is very interesting because I think that Golden State's death lineup fares significantly better against Embiid and the Sixers than it does against Giannis and the Bucks, mainly because Giannis is a more versatile and just a better overall defender for Embiid. And you can put Giannis at the five and play Drew, Chris, um, Wesley Matthews, Bobby Portis, Pat Connaughton, some combination of those guys and still have decent size on the perimeter. And then also you have Drew Holiday playing defense as well, who's an all MB, who's an all defensive kind of guy. That can work against Golden State, maybe. I'd have to see it in action, but that's a lineup, at least with the Bucks, that can switch everything and really have no problems guarding one through five, especially because Draymond isn't really that much of a threat to really do anything offensively outside of make plays and you know get a couple get a couple easy easy buckets around the hoop you're more so concerned about Steph Clay and now Jordan Poole which is ultimately where every team is going to fall apart trying to guard these guys because how are you going to keep tabs on all three of them while also effectively communicating how you want to shift your defense to accommodate the robust and intricate sets that Steve Kerr is going to want to break out like the Bucks are way more fitted to do that than the 76ers are especially since this lineup is going to be deployed late in the game and late in the game if you're the Sixers you're going to need Embiid and Harden and Tobias Harris out there and then I don't know what it's going to be like if Philly even gets to the finals but Matisse Thibel with his vaccination status making him ineligible to play in Toronto. I don't know if um, San Francisco has the same type of mandate, but that is going to be very interesting to watch. I would be frightened if I were the Sixers and I had to guard this lineup. The Bucks, not so much, again, because they have the size, they have the athleticism, they have the length to deal with it. Much like Boston has the size, length, and athleticism to deal with it but I think that this is just um classic classic Charles just um disliking the Golden State Warriors I mean it's it's not a shock like this is something that's been that Chuck has been perpetuating for many years now he's just not fond of this team uh, for whatever reason I don't know why but with this one listen I know Chuck and Kenny and Shaq aren't exactly the you know, they're not exactly projecting their intellect on like an astral level when it comes to analyzing basketball. They're more so like for entertainment and just making jokes and the banter with one another. But this, like Chuck is just being wrong. Chuck is just wrong on main with this one. Um, I think to close out today's segment, we have to talk about this interview that uh, DeMarcus Cousins had with Mark Spears for 
Uh, it was first the undefeated, now it's Anscape. So they went under a little bit of a rebrand. But these two had a little bit of a discussion the other day. Uh, and they were just talking about DeMarcus Cousins' career. DeMarcus Cousins really being one of the most interesting players in recent NBA history. Because, you know, comes out of Kentucky, was part of that Kentucky class that had, like, what was it, five guys drafted in the first round. Goes to Sacramento, the worst the worst organization that any young player can go to. Gets off to a slow start and then develops into arguably the best offensive center in basketball. Was a guy that finished top 10 in MVP voting twice. Was averaging at 1.27-12-5. And then... Gets traded to New Orleans the night of the All-Star game. Plays a couple of years with Anthony Davis. And, you know, an experiment that some people thought could have worked. And to his credit, Boogie did put up relatively decent numbers. Uh, Where are we? Like 24 and 12, 25, 13 and 5. You know, good defensive numbers. But then goes to Golden State. Tears his ACL and just has not been the same. Since then, since tearing his ACL, he's played for four different teams in two years. Houston, the Clippers, Milwaukee, and Denver. And he's fitting in with Denver because they really ha- they don't have a backup center option. And listen, Cousins is still a guy who can give you decent minutes. Might not be the player that he once was, but can give you 15, 18, 20 minutes, put in a couple points. Playing the post a little bit, haul a couple of rebounds in. But this interview made its way across my view because he was shitting on Sacramento. And if you guys know me, if you guys know me, I love shitting on dog shit organizations because it's fun. And there has been no more dog shit organization over the last 10, 15 years or so. Then the Sacramento Kings, an organization that has perpetually been the most dysfunctional and has outlived the dysfunctional spans of the Phoenix Suns, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the New York Knicks, just to name a few. All three of those organizations, by the way, at one point were considered the most dysfunctional in the NBA, but neither had the tenure of dysfunction that the Sacramento Kings have had. We're talking like 10 coaches and five general managers in 15 years we're talking about the team who just recently traded (laughs) Tyrese Halliburton to Indiana for DeMontis Sabonis and they also traded Buddy Heald which is awesome so the question was where is it okay so it starts they're talking about Michael Malone who is the coach of the Denver Nuggets. You had success playing for Malone in Sacramento when he was fired after an 11 and 13 start during the 2014-15 season after losing 8 to 10 games while you were out of fighting viral meningitis. What do you recall about his firing and how it affected you? Again, another dog shit move by the Sacramento Kings. I thought they were insane and it shows, which is true. You don't even really have to speak on it because what because what I knew then about Mike, I knew he would soar. He went to the next place and has been nothing but successful. When he was with us in Sacramento, he was successful. Still doesn't make sense, and it never will. Um, everything else that happened to Sac should have never happened. You think you would have been in Sacramento longer if they didn't let him go? Absolutely. Yada, yada, yada. 
He's talking. He's talking. He then says this, when it comes to these modern day bigs we see today that we're praising today, I feel like I'm the godfather and they won't give me credit, which is fine. And, I, you know, a lot of times athletes say stuff like this and you as like a media person or as like um or as someone who just doesn't or as someone who just follows the sport for fun you're kind of like why is he saying that that's that's not true like chuck just blatantly was lying but demarcus cousins does really have a point here i mean when we're talking about gifted offensive centers guys who put the ball on the deck play on the perimeter a little bit um you know get in the paint, bang around in the post. Like, DeMarcus Cousins was doing all that. And he was doing all that while averaging four or five assists per game. I mean, did he have the offensive polish of somebody like Joel Embiid or Carl Anthony Towns? No, but he's also not super far away from them in that regard. Like, he's, he's if they're at the top, he's like in between them and the tier right below. You averaged 21 points and 11 rebounds in seven seasons with Sacramento. Do you want to see your time? Do you want to see your jersey retired there? Um, I think that'd be nice for the Kings to do that. Although I I don't know if they will, because they fucking suck. <coughs> oh, this is where it got good. If you could go back and change anything, what would you change that might have changed how you're perceived now? Is there anything where you're like, man, I should adjust? And Demarcus responds, I would have skipped skipped my draft workout in Sacramento. And Mark Spears replies, why? Because that's always the best question to ask when someone says something crazy like that. What did Sac do for me besides saying my name on draft day? I did more for them than they did for me. That's just being honest. That's being 100% honest. I had two owners, three GMs, seven coaches in seven years. And then he repeats, I was there seven years, had three GMs, two owners, seven coaches. Not much more needs to be said. And DeMarcus hit the hits the nail on the head. He points out that what the fuck are they doing in Sacramento? He is 100% right when he says that he did more for Sacramento than Sacramento did for him. All Sacramento did for DeMarcus Cousins was give him Ajita probably. Meanwhile, he... He was a player that the fan base, a Sacramento basketball fan base that loves their team, he was someone that they could attach themselves to and point to him as a homegrown star while the franchise was busy fucking all of that up. And he did so much for the city of Sacramento, community-wise, basketball-wise. Like, I don't think there is any Sacramento Kings fan that harbors ill will towards DeMarcus Cousins. Is he a little bit of a quote-unquote hothead, I guess? Does he get a little emotional on the basketball court sometimes? Yeah, sure, he does. Do they hate that? Um, I would guess that they don't because, like, it, me- it means that he gives a fuck. Was it to the detriment of the team sometimes? Yes, you can't say that it wasn't. And um, especially knowing how the referees love to treat DeMarcus Cousins. But, like, he cared, man. He- I think that... DeMar- he loved being in Sacramento. Definitely not being definitely not being in Sacramento with the Kings, but yeah, he did so much, so much for that team. And then a little bit later on in the article, he starts talking shit about um Vladi Divac. I got to find that. 
Oh, this is it. Do you think you got Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame numbers? And he replies, doesn't say yes or no. It says, Vladi Divac is in the Hall of Fame. And Mark replies, I'm asking about you. To which Cousin says, Vladi Divac is in the Hall of Fame. Look at his career statistics and look at mine. We'll leave it at that. Now, this was the... This is the duality of man. Because... In one breath, you have DeMarcus Cousins hitting the nail on the head when it comes to how the Kings organization fucked him over. But then on the other hand, you have him totally missing the mark when it comes to Vladi Divac. Now, I think that people sometimes forget that it's the it's the Basketball Hall of Fame and not just the NBA Hall of Fame. Like, that is something that eludes people a lot a lot of the time just because it's easier to say NBA Hall of Fame than it is to say basketball Hall of Fame but Vladi Divac is in the MB is in the basketball Hall of Fame not because of his NBA career but because he's one of the greatest European basketball players ever like that's why he's there he's there for the same reason that Yao is in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Granted, Yao Ming had better numbers than Vladi Divac was, but he had a short career derailed by injuries. But his impact on basketball in China is equal to that of guys in Europe, like um, Vladi Divac, of course, Pau Gasol, Ricky Rubio, Luka Doncic. Like, I know all of those guys played in the NBA. And Manu Ginobili's another one who he'd be in the Hall of Fame even if he never came to the NBA or if he came to the NBA and, you know, barely played. Like, Ginobili, on the surface, his numbers are not that great, but he's got four championships. And I know he was huge in winning those championships, but it goes beyond the numbers. Like, this guy was a beast with the Argentinian national team. He was a beast over in the Italian leagues. I mean, Vlade Divac is a multiple time gold is a multiple time Olympic medalist with the uh the Yugoslavia the Yugoslavian basketball team the national team and then all of his contributions in Europe so this is just like I'm sure <coughs> Cousins is just resentful towards the Kings and towards Vladi Divac but I think that if you sat down to him or if Mark explained to him it's like well I, I get what you're saying a hundred percent but you know, Divock's contributions outside of NBA basketball are are the reason he's there. Like, considering that, can you answer yes or no? Do you think you're a Hall of Famer? Like, just try to beat the answer out of him. But with that, I think that I'm going to bring this episode to a close. As always, thank you guys so very much for coming to hang out with me today. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. I do this every Tuesday. The podcast goes live every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe and download with your favorite podcasting app. All of my other links will be down in the description box below to the YouTube channel, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that fun stuff. If you like this episode, tell a friend about it. If you didn't like this episode, also be sure to tell a friend about it. And with that, I'll catch you guys in the next one.